Hello, and welcome to the Dark Ages podcast. Today's episode, a great many things. Today is the first episode of our discussion of Clovis I, first king of the United Franks and first of the Merovingian dynasty of France. He was a contemporary of Theodoric the Great and the first Catholic king of a Germanic kingdom. Now, when I started the series on Theodoric, I had no idea that it would stretch out to eight episodes. The more I read, the more unfolded. There was more detail, more characters, more facets of Theodoric's personality and his reign to uncover. With Clovis, if I'm all completely honest, I have had the opposite experience. There's just not really that much available to us, and what there is kind of collapses into itself under close scrutiny. Unlike Theodoric, who became more complex and three-dimensional the more I read, Clovis remains, to me, more caricature than character. Obviously, I'll do my best to bring out what I can. There are certainly stories that are entertaining and illuminating and worth telling, and we'll finish this episode with one of them. But I very much doubt it will stretch across nearly four hours, the way Theodoric series did. The problem, you will not be surprised to know, is source materials. There aren't many, and they aren't much. The plan for today is to talk about the sources we do have, going into some detail about one of them in particular, and then do a quick recap of the situation in northern Gaul to refresh all our memories. The last time we talked about Gaul was way back in episode 18 of last season, I believe. And then that way we can talk about Clovis's predecessors and be able to bring the man himself on stage toward the end, with a famous story that illuminates something about his personality and his role in the times he lived in. But first, let's meet our narrators, the handful of voices that will take us through the haze of the early Frankish kings. There are essentially three chroniclers that are relevant. There is the Chronicle of Fridigar, the Liber Historiae Francorum, and Gregory of Tours. Oh, on top of that, there are a couple of ecclesiastical letters that I will talk about as they come up. We'll start with Gregory of Tours because everybody starts with Gregory of Tours. He is both the earliest and most important chronicler of the first century of the Merovingian kings. Gregory was born around 539 into an important family in the Auvergne, that region of central France that has already had such a high profile on this show. The details of Gregory's life mainly come to us from his own pen. While personally he's very self-effacing, he was proud of his family lineage. Both sides of his family held senatorial rank under the empire. There was a long family tradition of both civil and ecclesiastical service, so it came as no surprise to anyone when Gregory was ordained as a deacon in 563 at the age of 25, and ten years later he was elected to replace the late Bishop of Tours, who had also been his cousin. He was the 19th Bishop of Tours, and would hold the position for 21 years up until his death at age 55. France was, at the time, ruled by the Merovingian kings, sometimes called the Long-Haired Kings, the descendants of Clovis. The Merovingians are a tangled web, riven by instability thanks to their habit of dividing their kingdom among multiple sub-kings, who were then always at each other's throats. In an atmosphere of pretty much constant violence among the civil authorities, bishops stood apart as, theoretical, exemplars of Christian principle. 
it is of course possible to take that characterization too far. In addition to their spiritual responsibilities, bishops were substantial landowners, automatically inserting them into politics. They also saw themselves as bulwarks against heresy and heathenry, which sometimes led to conflicts with the secular aristocracy. A bishop in Merovingian France bore both great power and great responsibility, Spider-Man. It's easy to be cynical about them, but in the brutal world of early medieval France, bishops often were the only authorities that can be seen to have even a shadow of compassion or concern for principles of morality or the well-being of the people around them. They were also often the most stable authority figures, since they were much less likely to die in battle, and it was much more difficult for a hostile king or lord to depose or dispose of them than it was their secular counterparts. Gregory's bishopric at Tours was a metropolitan see, meaning that Gregory had some authority over other bishops. This is apparently different from an archbishop, though if somebody could please write in and explain to me how it's different, I would very much appreciate it. So in addition to his own responsibilities to his home churches, he had responsibilities for Le Mans, Rennes, Angers, Nantes, and four other sees, kind of in the northwest part of France between the Loire and Brittany. Gregory was popular in his diocese, and had a reputation across most of France for learning and piety. In Tours, he was in a position to be well informed of goings-on all over the kingdoms. The city is a major port on the Loire, and five old Roman roads converge there. Thanks to both his physical position and his official one, Gregory knew everybody, and was known by just about everybody. He hosted visitors from abroad frequently, and so received information from sources as far away as Armenia and Antioch. The secular rule of Tours passed through the hands of four different kings or regents during his lifetime, and Gregory was familiar, if not necessarily always friendly, with all of them, and worked as a diplomat for some. Often sickly, and apparently very short of stature, Gregory had a big heart that comes through in his writing. He tends to downplay his own role in stories that he clearly is telling from first-hand experience, and not in the formulaic humble brag kind of way. There's compassion for the citizens under his care, especially the children, and he allows his own emotions to peek through here and there. He wrote quite a bit, with 11 works that are known to us, and nine of them have survived. Among them are histories of the Church Fathers, books of miracles, a life of St. Martin, his personal favorite, and the one that we are interested in, the Decem Libri Historiarum, the Ten Books of History, which is more commonly known as the History of the Franks. It's pretty much the closest we can get to a contemporary source for the early Frankish kings and Clovis, Clovis having died just 50 years or so before Gregory became bishop. As a writer, Gregory is a breath of fresh air compared to many of his contemporaries. His prose moves right along, and he has a sense of humor that sneaks up on you. His basic theory of history is where the title of this episode came from. Quote, A great many things keep happening, some good, some bad. End quote. It's hard to argue with his analysis. As a historian, Gregory is an exemplary researcher. He lets us know about his sources. When he's unsure of a story, he tells us so. When he's using an oral history told to him by another, he makes a note. He set himself the task of figuring out who the first king of the Franks was, and he drills into his sources with precision and admirable rigor, to arrive at what was at the time a reasonable guess. Maddeningly, most of the sources he names are lost to us, and quite a few of them aren't referenced in any other works. 
Citation and Gregory, all we got. Yeah, that's the joy of Dark Ages research. Though Gregory's skills could pay his post-Roman bills, he was still limited by the circumstances of his time and place. The further from tours we get in the narrative, both in time and space, the more likely it is that Gregory will lead us astray. Or more correctly, the more Gregory will be himself led astray. We can at least have the comfort of knowing that he's not doing it intentionally. But it's not to say that he doesn't have an agenda. There are times when, faced with multiple interpretations, he will choose the one that fits his narrative rather than the one that's more likely. But then, we all do that, don't we? Nor is he immune from mistakes. He's not great at chronology, for example. Just about any time he gives a year that we can cross-reference with something else, Gregory turns out to be the one that's wrong. But as an aside, it is fascinating to me that we, he could have so much difficulty reconstructing events that had been so relatively recent. To put it in a personal context, Clovis's death is to Gregory as temporarily distant as Marilyn Monroe's death is to me. Not that big a gap is what I'm saying. Yet Gregory seems to have only slightly less trouble unearthing the facts of early Frankish rulers than we do. It would be like me not being able to find out when the seven-year itch came out. This is what I mean when I call the period the Dark Ages, by the way, if you're new to the podcast and hadn't heard me rant about it. It's hard to see. They're dark. I've spent this much time on Gregory's biography because he's going to be with us for quite a while, and because, as I said, he's pretty much all we've got for these early kings. The other sources of the period will largely use him as a foundation on which to build their own narratives, such as the Chronicle of Fridigar. Look, not every segue is going to be seamless and perfect, okay? The Fredegar Chronicle was written, or compiled, in the 7th century sometime, probably in Burgundy, by an unknown author or authors. The name Fredegar wasn't attached to the book until the 16th century, so as far as we can tell, Fredegar as a person is fiction. The oldest surviving manuscript of the work was made in 715, and it's known as the Codex Clermontanus. It's currently roommates with the treasure of Kilderic at the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. There are about 30 manuscripts known to exist of Fredegar, and they're all a little different, like a lot of books. It's a thing of many parts, with chunks of other works reproduced within its pages along with its own chronicle, which in the Clermontanus runs up until the year 658. In other manuscripts, there is more material that's been added, and Gregory's history is reproduced at length and added to and changed around a bit in some interesting ways, which I'll mention whenever they cross the interest threshold. In spite of the relative plethora of manuscripts that survive, I have looked high and low but been unable to find an English translation of the Fredegar Chronicle. There is one edition that has only the fourth book, which covers years much after what we're interested in here, and is unbelievably expensive. So, unlike Gregory, who I have sitting on my desk next to me right now, I am forced to rely on what other, more learned people can tell me about Fredegar. Also, unlike Gregory, it is impossible to be definitive about the Fredegar Chronicle's author, since, as I mentioned, he's a later invented attribution. Last among our main sources, we have the Liber Historiae Francorum, the book of the history of the Franks. This is another anonymous author, working in the 8th century, and it's a shame that he's anonymous because a bunch of interesting things start to appear in the Historia. Whoever wrote it is, again, pretty dependent on Gregory's work on the, for the early history of the Franks and their kings. There just wasn't a lot of chronicling going on at the time, and certainly nothing that even comes close to the depth and detail of Gregory. 
The Historia, though, is a, has a very clear agenda. The people who know about these things say that whoever wrote it seems to have been of a more secular mindset and very class conscious. There's a clear agenda to bolster the legitimacy of the Merovingian dynasty, but it emphasizes the importance of consultation between kings and great lords. In other words, it has an aristocratic rather than a monarchist or ecclesiastical bias. The Historia adds details to stories that Gregory told, and usually in an effort to make them sexier, for want of a better word. It really does all come back to Gregory of Tours, though. In spite of his problems with dates, he really is very close to being the only source we have for Clovis and the rulers immediately preceding and succeeding him. In the interest of completeness, I should mention, there are two other chronicles of the same period, and together they make up about 25 pages in modern translation, so they're not what you would call sweeping epics. So, so much for sources. Let's review and set the scene. Exterior. Day. Space. The camera finds Earth in the center of the frame, sweeps down from space through the clouds, and settles over the Lower Rhine, around the year 400. The land here is dominated by the Franks, a Germanic people, probably not new to the area, but rather a confederation of the tribes that have always lived there, and raided back and forth across the Great River, and have been the subject of Roman punitive expeditions for generations. Like everyone else along the frontiers, they have traded, raided, made deals with the Romans. Some have been settled on land on the west side of the Rhine. These are the Salian Franks. The riparian Franks live on the other side, the wild side. If you look closely, you can see Lou Reed over there inviting you to take a walk. Some Franks will find a high office in the military machinery of Rome. Others will join with their Saxon neighbors and launch seaborne raids and piratical expeditions along the narrow sea. There is a story among some Franks that they are descended from the Trojans, just like the Romans are, and once were united under a single king in a city in Pannonia called Sicambria. They were given the name Franks by a Roman emperor in honor of their ferocity in battle. None of that's true, but it helps to forge the smaller tribes of Lower Germania into a larger unit. When chaos overtakes the empire, the Franks are right there in the mix. Some fight against Aetius for influence in Gaul, and then join him to face the threat of the Huns. Others are swept up in Attila's army and fight their cousins in the Battle of the Catalonian Fields. Chaos in Gaul creates danger and opportunities for the Franks, just like all the other tribes we've talked about. Among the Salian Franks, a warlord named Clodio emerges, and engages in the age-old dance of contract renegotiation with the Roman powers. He sees Cambrai and makes it his seat of power. His power may have extended as far south as the Somme, but very little is specifically known about him. Whether Clodio was the root of the Merovingian dynasty isn't clear, though, according to Gregory, many believed he was in some kind of way. The real root of the family is Merovech, whence Merovingian, and his origin story is much more exciting and maddening in the way that only early medieval history can be. Gregory mentions Merovech only once, to note that he was Hilderic's father, and therefore Clovis's grandfather. The Fridigar Chronicle has much more interesting things to tell, if interesting is the right word. According to this version, Clodio had a wife, and she went bathing in the sea. While in the waves she was approached by, quote, the beast of Neptune that resembles a quinitar. There is no further description of what actually happened then, but according to the Chronicle, it was the, 
thus uncertain whether Merovech was Clodio's son or not. Okay, a few things to pull out of this. First, resembles a Quinatar. Quinatar does not appear in any other source that anybody's been able to find. This is the only mention of it, so why are we using it as a point of comparison? The word itself suggests a bull with five horns, but it's clearly a nautical creature, beast of Neptune. Come on, Fredegar, help a guy out, please. Spoilers, he won't. So we have a king that may be descended from some kind of sea monster, which the definitely Christian Fredegar ties to the Roman god Neptune, though granted he may have just been being literary. It is in a way consistent with the king's genealogies among other Germanic peoples, which often extended back to some god, more often than not it was Woden, or Odin, or his equivalent. In the Goths' case, if you remember, if I remembered to mention it, the Amals traced their line back to a god called either Gaut or Gautaz, and they held onto that idea long after they were converted to Christianity. What's different here is that the Merovingians aren't descended from a god, but from a monster. The bull motif, too, is very common in Greco-Roman mythologies, Zeus's rape of Europa in the form of a bull, and the birth of the Minotaur being the ones that spring to the top of one's mind. So what we have going here is a synthesis of a Greco-Roman mythical tradition with a Germanic one, rendered to us in church Latin. Could be a metaphor for the whole era. Out of what was undoubtedly a traumatic experience for the poor queen came Merovech, who might have spent some time in Rome, might have been adopted by Aetius, might have been one of the Frankish warriors who faced Attila in 451, might, 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 might. He did, certainly, have a son of his own, Kilderic, whose grave goods we have already taken a look at back in episode 16. Speaking frankly was the episode title. One thing that I didn't mention about that grave at the time, because I didn't know it at the time, is that later excavations of the site turned up the bones of a number of horses that had been killed and arranged around Kilderic's grave. That both further confirms the high-ranking uh, position of that individual, and indicates that the occupant of the grave was resolutely pagan. We don't know much about Frankish paganism, but we do know that no Christians anywhere were sacrificing horses as part of their funeral rites. There will be much more to say about religion and its relationship to Clovis and his family in the near future. So, clip and save that little bit. Gregory has only spotty information about Kilderic, and doesn't, it doesn't really add up to anything that resembles a coherent story. I'll give you the broad outline, and you can see for yourself. Kilderic fought a battle at Orléans, presumably against the Visigoth. Meanwhile, a group of Saxons arrived at Angers, led by someone called Odoacer. Whether this is the Odoacer who went on to fame in Italy is probably unknowable. I, personally, skeptical. About this time, plague appeared in Gaul and carried out Egidius, who you may remember had served Majorian as commander in Gaul and had refused to recognize Ricimer's puppet emperor. Egidius's death opened up a power vacuum, with multiple players scrambling to fill it. Odoacer took hostages from Angers, the Goths attacked Britons under Riothamus and drove them away from Bourges, and then were defeated by a Roman commander named Paul. Paul's army was a combination of both Romans and Franks. Maybe some of them were, all, were also working for Kilderic. It seems that some kind of battle took place near Angers between Romans and Saxons, in which Paul was killed. Kilderic slid into Angers and claimed it, and Roman command passed to Egidius's son, Syagrius. <sighs> 
I'll wait for a second so you can mop up that nosebleed. None of that makes a huge amount of sense. It's a string of events with only the loosest of connective tissue. It's not really clear whether Hilderic was operating on behalf of the Romans, the Franks, or himself. Though, the balance of evidence to me seems to point towards independence. He may have commanded troops under Aegidius in the Roman chain of command before setting out on his own. About the most we can say about the 460s in northern Gaul is that it was at the mercy of a bunch of roaming warbands, whose allegiances and interests changed with the winds. Some of them could claim to be upholding Roman rule, with or without the actual sanction of Roman authorities, while others were all out there busily looking out for number one. It's also clear that these war bands were not strictly ethnic entities. Some Franks were perfectly prepared to fight alongside Romans and Saxons, or under Roman commanders when their circumstances dictated. It was a situation familiar to us from the life of St. Severinus, with the cities probably still under nominally Roman control, through by Aegidius and then Syagrius, with the countryside at the mercy of the barbarian bands. Hilderic seems to have taken control of a significant force of Franks as Aegidius struggled to keep control over the north. Once he was established at Tournai, Fredegar tells us that he was approached by Bassina, the queen of the Thuringians. She explained that she desired to be wed to the strongest man available, and so had abandoned her husband to come and marry Hilderic. On their wedding night, she sent him to look outside, where he saw the symbols of their future descendants. At first, there were lions, and then leopards, and then unicorns, wolves, and bears, and finally dogs. The marriage story appears in Gregory. The animal vision does not. It's part of a long tradition of framing the Merovingian story as one of continuous decline. We can't know how much of any of this is true, though I'm pretty sure there weren't any unicorns out there stealing the leftover wedding cake. But it fits in broad strokes with the archaeological and other evidence. A silver ladle was found in the Thuringian city of Weimar and bears the name Bassana. And the Roman and Byzantine jewelry and coins found in Kilderic's grave speak to a relationship with Rome on some level, but his exact position and the real outline of his life are impossible to see with any kind of real clarity. There is one other contemporary source besides Gregory who might be able to give us the final word on Kilderic's real significance. The Bishop of Ralph which, as an Anglophone, I am genetically incapable of pronouncing correctly, but I do try, was a man named Remigius, and he wrote a congratulatory letter to Clovis when he succeeded his father, Kilderic. Remigius congratulates Clovis on taking over his father's position in Belgica Secunda, which is a Roman province, encompassing Reims, Soissons, Cambrai, Tournai, Amiens, and Boulogne. And with that, we finally arrive at the ostensible subject of this episode, Clovis. Historians debate about the dating of that letter. Are we surprised? No, we are not. The choices are either 481 or 486. Hilderic is believed to have died in 481, so that's where that date comes from, while Syagrius was defeated and driven from his seat at Soissons in 486, so that's where that one comes from. This is how it goes with Clovis. Everything is up for debate and interpretation. What is clear is that Bishop Remigius thought of Clovis's authority still in terms of Roman provincial division, which may be significant. It is also clear from the letter that at the time of its writing, Clovis followed his ancestral paganism. Remigius insists that in 
spite of his own religious feelings, Clovis should take advice from the Christian clerics of his realm. We have to remember that, just as it was not ethnically monolithic, the army that Clovis and these other war leaders led was not religiously monolithic. They probably included pagan and Christian, Aryan and Catholic. And of course, the greater population that they were operating within was Catholic. So Kilderic and Clovis probably operated under similar conditions. And as a result, the Christian clerics felt they had a role to play. It's a real mess, isn't it? I'm sorry about that. Let's introduce Clovis just a little more fully, so then we can see if we can sort things out and leave on a note of something that sounds like clarity. Clovis, son of Kilderic and Bassina, took over the leadership of the Salian Franks, presumably on the death of his father. He was probably in his late teens at the time. His name in his native language would have been something like Clodovich, a word which would gradually morph through Latinization and then natural evolution into the names Ludwig, Ludovic, and Louis. That native language, by the way, Frankish, is probably the most direct ancestor of Dutch. Some Frankish words made their way into French, but fewer than you might think. It remained firmly Latin at its core. Remind me to do an episode on language sometime. It'll probably kill me, but I'll give it a try. Clovis made it clear right away that, like Lancelot, he would be sticking to his idiom. He and his men raided out from Tournai, striking at the tottering but still rich Roman towns around them. As a war leader, Clovis's role was to increase his prestige and enrich his followers, and Clovis played that role, ruthless both with his targets and keeping his men in line. And that brings us to probably the most famous story about Clovis the Frank, a story that all French schoolchildren know, where we ask and answer the question, Qui a classé la vase de Soissons? The Franks attacked Soissons in a raid, broke into the city with little difficulty, and stripped it of its riches. The greatest bulk of those riches, obviously, came from the church. Among that booty there was a large vessel, a vase or a ewer, of exceptionally fine workmanship and unusual size. The bishop of Soissons sent a message to Clovis. He did not begrudge the Franks the spoils that were the right of any victor, but he asked if Clovis might return the vase as a special favor to him. Clovis was willing but his power was not absolute. When his army gathered to divide the loot, Clovis asked them if they would agree to give him the vase in addition to his own customary share of the treasure. Almost all of them shouted their agreement, saying that they all they had belonged to him anyway. They could not refuse his request. But one man held out. He said it was customary to divide the loot equally, and that custom must be observed. He would not surrender his part of the vase. And so saying, he threw the vase on the ground, and it shattered. Clovis seemed unmoved. He ordered the broken pieces gathered up and returned to Soissons, presumably with a note of apology. Sometime later, Clovis ordered his men to assemble and line them up for an inspection. He examined each man's gear, working his way down the line until he came to the man who had broken the vase. This man he berated. His shield was cracked, his clothes were dirty, his axe was a rusted disgrace. Clovis seized the offending weapon and threw it on the ground, and when the warrior bent to pick it up, Clovis raised his own axe and split the man's skull. Just as you did to my vase in Soissons, he growled before moving on. Qui a classé la vase de Soissons? Un guerrier franc a classé la vase de Soissons. 
The story shows us the change that had been working its way through the Germanic warbands. An egalitarian structure is giving way to the unquestioned authority of a leader. Clovis lines up his men for inspection like a Roman army, and he holds their lives in his hands. On the other hand, there are still remnants of that old Germanic tradition. He dared not claim the vase for himself without consulting with the men first, and had the whole exchange not been witnessed beforehand, I doubt he could have gotten away with executing the offender without consequence. Over the course of his life and reign, Clovis would slide along the scale from barbarian warband leader toward medieval king. And over the course of these episodes about him, we'll track that slide and talk about what that change meant. Many thanks to all of you for your patience. I know I have not been very regular about getting episodes out. Part of it has been illness, both my own and others. Part of it has just been the usual busyness of the end of the school year coming up. And as valid as those reasons may be, it doesn't keep me from feeling guilty when I don't get an episode out every two weeks, which seems ridiculous, as it is. And two episodes in two months is just unacceptable. Not much more I can say about that except for make my apologies yet again. The next episode will come out when it comes out, and I will do my very best. I'm not going to make any predictions or promises about it, though. Other than it will be about the early career of Clovis, probably up to his conversion to Catholic Christianity, a pivotal moment in the history of the West. Maybe we'll use it as an opportunity to talk about the state of religion. Who knows? I also haven't been very good about answering emails. If you have sent me a message through the website or directly, know that I read all of them, and we'll get back to answering those soon. Special thanks to those folks who have supported the podcast on Kofi.com. To Scott, another Scott, Alex, and Ole. And to the folks who left a clutch of lovely reviews on the apps. Thank you all for the encouragement in all of its forms, and thank you for listening. Until next time, take care.